けで実は。<笑><笑>
need you in our lives. And we pray for your guidance, for people who are seeking you, and um, that we'll be cognizant of your presence in, uh, in our day-to-day life and realize that you provide everything for us and that we will be uh, walking gratitude. Bless our uh, volunteers tonight, people running the show, and uh, those who are in the studio audience and those who are out there uh, watching from home. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I want to introduce a new segment we're going to try to keep alive for the next few months, year, whatever, however long it lasts, and we're going to call it, well, you take a look. That's it. If I had kids today, and uh, I, uh, some of you are aware that I have three daughters, and I am the uh, grandfather of two grandsons. Every now and again, we get an email from a parent asking advice on, so what do you do with, how do you raise your kids? In fact, we just had dinner with some friends who are asking that. How do you you raise your kids if they were LDS or if they are LDS and you become a Christian? Uh, Do you pray? How do you pray with them? Do you read the Bible with them? And et cetera, et cetera. So as long as we're inclined, we're going to try to gather up uh, my 81 years of parenting experience. That's right, 81 years. How did I get, get to that number? Well, I just took my daughter's ages and added them up because parenting is not like this overall thing. It's an individual thing. And so I believe I've been parenting for 81 years as each of them are uh, unique. And, and so tonight we're just going to share some simple things that I would do if I was raising kids today. And the first thing is nobody is born a Christian. And so not even your adorable little geniuses. uh, So don't treat them as if they're Christians is my advice. When we think about it, we ought to treat our children uh, like we would treat other non-Christians. And that is with love. And that is with patience and long-suffering and without condemnation. And, uh, you know, if, if you're the type of Christian who looks out at the world, who doesn't know God and says, you are gonna burn in hell then you're probably that kind of parent too. And you'd probably say that to your kid. You're gonna burn in hell if you don't follow. And you're gonna create monsters. You're gonna create people who hate God. So I would treat our toddlers and children and unregenerate teenagers as if they, uh, if you treat them as if they're Christians, we run the risk of a kid who grows up calling themselves a Christian until they realize, why do I even say that? I don't even know that I am. You know, so this position is supported by scripture that we are all creations and creatures of God. We are not his children until we believe. And so it is only by faith and the moving of the Holy Spirit that individuals shift from being creatures and creations to being children of God. That's biblical tenets, basic biblical. So don't ever forget this, even with our own offspring. So what to do? I would raise my kids with this truth. I'd say things like, your mom and I were Christians. And I'd say, Jesus is our king. Maybe someday Jesus will be your king too. That's how I would put it. Maybe someday you'll, you'll want uh, Jesus to be your king. And then I would get them thinking about Jesus. And, and that would put me as a parent kind of in a unique position too. Because by admitting that, that Jesus is my king and Lord, then I better start acting like it. you know. So it kind of puts you into a spot if you're going to say that to your kid. So I think it's a good thing. I'd do it. And then I would teach them principles uh, from the word, but not 
according to the word verbatim. Um, I would kindly and gently, and I would never force my faith and the, my worship upon my prayers even upon them as if it's mandatory. Now, some of you are thinking you're nuts. You're crazy to die. Train up a child which way you're going. That, that's an Old Testament passage. And I am talking about in a very difficult world, getting your kids to want to know who Jesus is and to want to have him versus forcing it upon them. I would pray in front of them, especially I would pray for them. Oh, you know, God, please bless my daughter. Please bless my son. Help them. Help my wife. And I do it with a smile on my face. And, uh, and I, would, I would explain to them what I'm doing in these prayers. And at some point, maybe I would say, do you want to pray? And they say yes or no. And they, if they want to say, well, you can talk to God. Talk to God. It's okay. And most importantly, I would never condemn or, man, or, or manipulate or scare them in the name of God. I would never use him as a tool to shame them. Oh, God would not like that at all. I just don't think it, it, it works in the long run. God would always be presented as the most loving, most trusting being that they could ever look to. And someday they may ask, after you have said Jesus is my king, they may say, well, how come he's not mine? And then, you know, you open up a door to help them understand how to receive him. Whole time I would gently plant seeds in their heart, allowing, inviting, participate, and everything else. I would let them see me talking to God. I'd let them see me reading the word. I would let them uh, hear me asking God to help my wife and children. Above all, I would do my best to be Jesus to them in our family, to, to reflect what Jesus was to us, to reflect that to them. That's more important than even the church you go to. That's more important than the denomination. That's more important than being a Catholic or a Mormon or a Baptist or anything else. It's being Jesus to those kids. And in the end, if I had kids, I'd, I'd make joining the Jesus Club. And I say that as a kid, as you talk to a kid. I'd make joining the Jesus Club super inviting. And, uh, but I would also let them know they're not a member of it yet. And uh, then I would patiently wait for them to say, well, how do I join the club? And then when they do, you've got the door open and then you can bring them in by the spirit, by their own will, by their own desires and not before. And with that, how about a moment from the word? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. Here in the studio church, we have a couple pa uh, passages that are on the walls. One is trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thy own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. We think this passage is so significant, we stuck it on the wall. And our daughter Mallory, who you just met at the beginning, she put it to music. And it goes like this.
actually relates to these verses in Proverbs. It's from Jeremiah. It's on the wall. It says in Jeremiah 9, 23, 24, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord which exercises loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. So we have kind of a compilation of those two verses that I just read. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Don't let the wise man glory in his wisdom. Don't let the mighty man glory in his might. Don't let the rich man glory in her riches. But let him that glory, glory in this, that he understands and knows me. That's what God says. Who cares if you're strong? Who cares if you're rich? Who cares if you're wise and all these things? This is what God says. Glory that you understand and know him, that I am the Lord which exercises loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For then these things I delight, says the Lord. He, He loves it when we know him, right? So... David said this to his son Solomon in 1 Chronicles 28, 9. And these passages are going to mean something in a second. Solomon, my son, know thou God thy father. Excuse me. Know thou the God of thy father and serve him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the imaginations of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found of you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off. Jesus plainly said in John 17, 3, This is life eternal that they may know him, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent, knowing him. Again, how do you know him? We study, we hear the word, we ponder the spirit, and which is the fruit of it is love. And this approach comes while we're studying Uh, As Jesus says, we ask and it will be given to us. We seek and we will find. And we knock and it will be opened to us. That's another passage we put to, uh, that Mallory put to music. This is how it goes. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. To you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. For Okay, so 
with all that, I'm going to take those verses we just shared with you, and let's go to our board of direction, if I can do that. Okay, so what we have here is a five-part Venn diagram, and I just gave you five verses, and I'm going to link them together to show you kind of how they're chained in my mind. The first one is First Chronicles. I read that. That was David's word to his son uh, Solomon, and First Chronicles 28.9 um, says, the key to it, he says, is know thou the God of thy father. So no God, that's what that first one is. The next one is John 17, three. And what does it say? Jesus says to his disciples, this is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God. So here we have a no and a no, Old Testament, New Testament. And then what's the link between all of these? How do we know thee, the only true God? We go to Matthew 7, 7, and what is said there? Mallory sang it for us. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who receives finds. So we have a promise there. You want to know him? No, no. Ask, and it will be given to you. We had a conversation at dinner tonight. We are talking about, well, how do you know truth, and can you know truth? You can. You ask. And we've always said this, it starts to become kind of rote, but don't trust me. I'm a guy who has his views. Don't believe me. Don't believe a pastor. Don't believe a bishop, a pope. Don't believe anyone else. You go and you ask so you can know him. Then what comes after that? It's Proverbs 3, 5, 6. What did it say? We read it. It says, trust in the Lord. So you ask and then you trust. In the Lord, with all your heart, lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They, they know their stuff. And then finally, we have Jeremiah. What does that all mean? Remember, along the way, the Jeremiah 9, and that is, don't lean on, uh, Excuse me, neither the wise man nor the mighty man nor the rich man should glory in his wisdom or his might or his riches, but glory in this, that you understand him. So you go from knowing, you go, know me, know me, ask, trust him, and then when you understand him, don't rely on yourself, don't rely on your wisdom, your power, your wealth, your looks, your popularity. Just keep going and let that chain be kind of the thing that moderates. All right, we're going back, Delaney. I'm looking forward to talking tonight on this. <clears throat> Let's continue our examination on the powers that rule and reign over institutional religion and drive their ultimate desires, which we defined sort of last week as the deliberate concentration of power, wealth, and control in the hands of a few exercised upon the many. A few people puppeteering the many. Now, that phrase is not original to me, but it comes from someone I introduced you to last week, Noam Chomsky. I was corrected by Dave, who says it's Noam. I am not going to say Noam. I'm going to say Noam. And if he's insulted, Noam can write me a letter. No, I'm just kidding. All right. Remember that Chomsky's focus is on big government, corporate power, and major media outlets 
but I strongly believe that what he sees in them is what drives, is the spirit that drives institutional religion and the spirit that is in them. So what we're going to do is sort of high grade. That means take the very best of Chomsky's ideas relative to big business and big government and major media outlets. And we're going to try to talk about how those principles are applied to institutional religion. So in a documentary, which I took this from, uh, Requiem for American Dream, Chomsky begins by pointing out that in America today, inequality is unprecedented. Inequality is unprecedented. Uh, and inequality is found mainly in the fact in corporations and in, that the wealthy, one-tenth of one percent, govern everything. I just saw an article online, I don't know if it's true or not, that says eight of the wealthiest men in the world control 50% of the world's wealth. Eight people, 50% of the world's wealth. That's what Chomsky's talking about in here. He says you, what happens is you get inequality when that much power is based at the top end. And so uh, the problem is with this inequality, there is an e a corrosive effect upon democracy. And uh, a word I think is vitally important to the living faith today. Democracy is really important to the living faith in the Bible that comes forth to us now as we read it. Now, let me stop right here and explain that democracy is a system of government where all el eligible members participate, okay? So in a democracy of religion, everybody is going to participate. You're not going to have a pope standing there. You're not going to have the pastor ruling over people. You're going to have a, a democratic engagement. That's called the body. It's a corporate body all working together. You have the head, which is Christ, and everybody else is a part. You don't have this top-down authority of the one-tenth of one percent governing the minds and wills of other people. In government, it's typically through elected representatives. But we are discussing organized religion, and when it comes to organized Christianity, men and women have long tried and succeeded in stepping in and saying, this is not a, a democracy in the faith. No, 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 no. The reason is there's a church that belongs to Jesus Christ, and he has assigned me, a specific person, to govern. I am more prepared by God to tell you how to think about God and understand God than you are. And that's how they've set it up. They've made themselves part of the one-tenth of one percent, whether it's just in a single congregation or it's a multinational church. They have made themselves the authorities to go to, and therefore democracy is lost. At the end of the day, the justifications used for this stance is, this is how God established it. And they look to the New Testament church. Or God is a God of order. As if the Holy Spirit can't keep a church that's uh, 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 democratic orderly. He can. He does. Or we have ordinations. They've imposed ordinations to make sure that that 1% stays in control of the masses. Now, admittedly, when we read the New Testament, there is a justification present for an order of those, 
But those apostles and the elders, they work together in a much more democratic way than how we are led to believe they led. And again, that was only for that time when that church was trying to stay together due to really, really difficult forces, okay? We cannot be, we can't, what can't be admitted anymore, I don't know how we do it, is that this is the way it continues to be governed. We can't do it because we don't have apostles. We do, and, and that doesn't mean there should be. There shouldn't be, according to the Bible. But we don't have them. So it's not even the same organization going on there, where the apostles were the ones throwing down what should happen to keep that church alive. We don't have them today. So I don't know how we have taken what we read in that and assign it to ourselves. We have absolutely zero ability to lay claim to what happened in the New Testament to ourselves today. It's done, but in the face of facts that have no justification in light of history or scripture or eschatology. So in fact, I'm suggesting that the Bible supports that when men and women live by the Christian spirit and the fruit of that spirit is love, that it's the true spirit of democracy uh, which ought to govern the faith rather than the former means that we read about in the Bible and were in place before 70 AD. So we'll talk more about this in the weeks to come. Let's get back to Chomsky and the corrosive effects of inequality at play on the democracy in the nation. Now to him, quote, privileged and powerful sectors have never liked true democracy because democracy puts the power in the hands of the general population and, this is really important, and it takes it from them. So what he's saying is in big government and in corporations and in major media outlets, the, the one percent, one-tenth of one percent, do not like democracy because it takes power from them and it gives it to the general masses. And so what they say is the general masses can't handle it, so we need to retain it. Having a boatload of special interests, often personal special interests, the privileged and powerful sectors do not want to relinquish those special interests to the common man. They don't want them to have any control. They don't want them to be participants. And so they do everything they can to keep them spectators. That's what religion is doing. It takes people and it moves them from being active participants in a democratic part, uh, body and it makes them spectators. Meaning I show up on Sunday, I sit there and do what I'm told and then I go out and I am just a spectator when I should be a participant in my own faith and in the things I do. So look at the big institutional churches and those that mimic them. We have a ruling privileged class, the one-tenth of one percent, and they all have a boatload of special interests, like needing to be superior in intellect or uh, uh, in their relationship to God, so superior that they wear special collars, so superior that they sit and above everybody else throughout the meetings, so superior that people have to come to them for absolution, they have this, this air of superiority. And they love to be the ones who are in control of how people think and what they do. And even when it comes to political issues, often those people at the top of the religious masses, they will tell those groups how to think politically. 
So, I mean, these interests can flow all the way down to their personal tastes that the pastors have in movies, political parties, lifestyles, what you eat. It has been going on forever and ever. And so they can do it all in the name of God. And their aim is to keep religious democracy at a minimum because people seeking God, they want to please God. And so they just cower and they go along because if they raise their voice, they'll be called the one who is rocking the boat. They'll be called the black sheep. They'll be excommunicated. They'll be treated badly because they're challenging the authority of someone who has no authority. They don't have it over anybody. That's why Christ came. So again, for nearly 2,000 years, these religious men and women have taken the New Testament content and surreptitiously, without any biblical permission, assigned its governing principles to themselves. And this has served to ensure against the many stepping up and questioning. Everything from doctrine to practice to everything that goes on, they, they just sit back and they don't, they don't question, they don't defer. So down the road, we're going to get to the tools and methods and means by which they use the, the way they keep the people in line. But, that, but um, which is all refuted by a contextual analysis of the word. But for now, let's continue forward talking a little bit more about Chomp Chomp and leading the way. So all the way back in 1776, Chomsky says Adam Smith says something really insightful. You ready? He said, quote, In England, the principal architects of policy are the people who own society, merchants and manufacturers, and they make sure their own interests are well cared for, no matter how grievous the impact is on others. Remember that. That's a quote from Chomsky. Adam Smith, he, he said, listen, the merchants and manufacturers, they protect their own interests. It doesn't matter how much it harms everybody else. They protect their own. Chomsky notes that today it's not the merchants and manufacturers, but multinational conglomerates and financial institutions who Adam Smith, way back in the 1700s, called the masters of mankind. They are the masters overseeing everything. Now, when it comes to organized brick-and-mortar religion, who are the masters of mankind? If it's Jesus, great. Let Jesus, by the Spirit, be the masters of ma master of mankind. All for it. But if it's men... They will be doing the leading, and that is where we can conf uh, confront the fail. Because men have stepped in between Christ and his church, governed by the Spirit, and they've inserted themselves in there. Again, our interests are about the masters of mankind of institutional religion and, and who make sure that their own interests are well cared for, even if it means grievous impact upon others. Think I'm taking things too far. Look at the history of the Catholic Church. Just look at it. Look at all the things they have done as the one-tenth of one percent in a non-democratic society of believers. Look at the LDS Church and what it has done historically and what it continues to do. Look closely at any religious institution of any size and even some that are without any size at all and you will almost always find historically and in present day masters of mankind, the few, making sure their own interests are cared for no matter how grievous the impact is on others. 
So when I say no matter how grievous the impact is on others, I'm not only talking about financial impact where widows and struggling families are burdened with tithes and offerings to build up their massive empires, but I am also talking about the impact of time demands, allegiance to the leader's demands, worthiness demands, demands on cultural conformity, uh, and worst of all, the eternal impact they have of not teaching their flocks to think for themselves, study the scripture, feed them the word, because they want to keep them filling the seats. They give them something else instead of what Jesus is saying. I'm talking about grievous impacts that promote errant traditions, uh, grievous impacts uh, preaching a God who's incomprehensible, grievous in, uh, 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 teachings that make people fear, grievous teachings that make children fear God terribly and, and, and uh, who hold hell over their head and who hate fags and all the other things that have gone on by the puppeteers to keep themselves in control. They do this. They're able to get away with it week in and week out because they've granted themselves authority where there is none. And they apply the New Testament form of governance to themselves when they have no right to do it. And because they, they use fear and guilt and shame and other religious manipulations, eternal burning in hell forever and ever. Jesus' imminent second coming, be ready because he's coming back and he's pissed. And if you aren't ready, he's going to wipe you out and you won't be raptured up with him and the church. And they've been doing it for 2,000 years, completely putting true eschatology in the corner and hiding it. Because if, I mean, I'm not a really smart guy. I just am like everybody else. If you read the Bible, you can see what it says about his coming back. And yet they have manipulated it so that they can control people so that their own self-interest can be uh, met. In the end, they do it because they're businesses. They're not Christians. They are businesses. And they operate on corrupt business models and not on the liberating principles of God by the Spirit. That is what has to be. So, really quickly, Chomsky, a gadfly to big business, to government, to, uh, to major media outlets, he says they're all out to reduce democracy, to reduce the system of government where all eligible members participate. They don't want participation. They want observation and spectatorship. And, and uh, James Madison, he quotes him, he says, when they were putting the Constitutional Conve uh, uh, Convention together, James Madison said that to protect the rights of the opulent minority from the impoverished majority is the goal of, of what we're doing here. Madison added that if the Constitution was set up with true democracy, the poor would vote to overtake the rich. So listen, the Constitution must be set up to prevent democracy. And that's how I believe we're taking these principles and we're applying them to the church. And being so, we allow uh, the protection of the few uh, in the, to operate in the name of God. Years ago, uh, prompted by problems I saw in the local churches here in Utah, I bought a, I bought a website called Check My Church. And uh, I think it's a very needed resource. And if I had the time and money 
Uh, I would build it, but I don't. And so if someone else wants that to build it, do it. But the approach would be the same thing that we do, we do when we investigate medicine, when we inv the FDA, when we investigate food. And Check My Church would be a thing where people go in and they unbiasedly, they do, uh, uh, they do open door policy. Let's see how you worship. Let's see what your doctrines are. Let's see where the money goes. Let's see what you tell your congregants. This is what this says. This is what that church does. Let's do all of that. How come we don't do that? We don't do it. We do not police our own. We just let everybody go out there and, and say what they want without any bad. I'm not saying stop them. I'm just saying, why don't we have a website? The pastor and staff could be interviewed. Total transparency on everything that's done. I mean, we have watchdog groups for everything under the earth. Everything possible, but not with the churches. I'd love to get and shine a light and just say, okay, look at, are you part of Check My Church? Well, you need to be. Pastor, open up the doors. Tell us what you teach about eschatology. Tell us what you teach about God. Tell us what you teach about hell. Tell us what you teach about Jesus and, and about this and tithing. Tell us what you teach about people giving. How, do you, how much do you have to participate in your church? La, 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 la. How many times do you take a vacation, Pastor? Who pays for that vacation? What are your health benefits? What's your salary? And just do it all. Total transparency. And, and I would love to see that happen. Anyway, it's obviously Check My Church would terrify, terrify brick and mortars. Uh, and even some small non-denoms. Why? Because the one-tenth of one percent would fear uprising from the rabble. And they would fear loss of their control and their power and their privileged position. Next week, we're going to continue forth with some more principles, Chomky, Chom, introduces and uh, <laughs> and how the few manipulate the many as a means to control so that they can benefit themselves. It's going to culminate to a point where the, I think the light, if it hasn't already come on, is going to come on. You're going to say, these principles make some sense. Now we can see what is, has been going on in the name of God in Christ. Let's open up the phone lines, 801 590 8413, 801-590-8413. And while the black operators, that means black ops, are not anything with race. Black ops, you know, like secret ops, are checking your calls. Let's take a look at this.
and then I would um, record it in my photo booth so I don't forget it. For you are the Nothing better than the Word of God in our hearts and heads, and it gets in there quicker and better, I think, by music, and that's some great stuff. So we, uh, we uh, uh, invite you to check out uh, how to get it, and listen, if you can't afford it, you just write us and say, I'd like Mallory's music, and guess what? We'll send it to you free, and no obligation. So uh, we think that's a, a great gift. We don't own the Word of God. He owns it, and we just try to put it out to you. Uh, listen, we want to thank Steve Utley for the music he did for the new spot for If I Had Kids and Cassidy for always putting these things together for us on the video and, uh, and uh, also for Delaney who d is directing the show with Kathy Maggs and, uh, and Larry's sitting next to her. So I guess Larry's learning how to do it too. This is just a growing enterprise, I tell you. We're becoming a multinational conglomerate of uh, religion. Had a guy at a fast food joint the other day ask me, so if the churches surrender their material status, I corrected him. I said, don't surrender or not surrender. Just deconstruct it to a reasonable material footprint. I mean, just think. I, I know I'm talking about it a lot. If every church would just lower overhead and less demands and a reasonable operating budget and refuse to institutionalize, he said, what would they focus upon? And I said, well, instead of just giving him my answer, I said, well, what, what did Jesus and the apostles focus on? That's where we find out what to do. They went around and they shared the good news. So the primary thing would be to get the word out to the world. Share the good news with seeking people. And, you know, in addition to that, if, they, if, every, if the Catholic Church and the other churches, Mormonism, and deconstructed and they liquidated their assets of gold palaces and, and, and all that, and they used a portion to help their own in need, and they used a portion to share the word, and then they used a portion to keep their operating expenses going and the air conditioners on and things. I'm not talking about total uh, deconstruction. I'm just talking about some reasonable reduction in the opulence. Do you know, we have this conversation with my daughter sometimes, and that is, do you know who used to take care of the poor? before uh, the New Deal and FDR and, and everything that goes on. You know who used to take care of them? The churches. The churches. Before the welfare state and the welfare system, the churches used to do it. But the churches started taking the money and they started building up their own empires. So, I mean, it would be great if the churches started taking care of the poor, if the churches were really in charge of the homeless downtown. Don't rely on government money to do it. Let the people who contribute to the churches take care of them. And let's see the churches step up and really see what they're worth with the money that they're getting. 
but we have reversed it. We have said, government, do it. Government, do it. Let's raise the taxes. And the churches have just gotten fat and bigger and, and blah, instead of doing what they were originally intended. So that's what I would say is share the good news. That is where the proceeds ought to go. And uh, I thought I'd just share that with you. Uh, just an email. Thank you. Glad that my husband and I have come to a saving relationship with the Lord. This is from Angela and William H. Lutheran. Billy, Billy Graham came to the Morgan, Morgan, Mormon organization at 19 years old. And, uh, and then th- through heart of the matter, started to understand uh, many things about the LDS faith. And then decided that she was going to go back to her roots which were in uh, Billy Graham and, and uh, Lutheran Church and things like that. And so we just congratulate them. Sachin Samuel A. writes us and says, there is a guy online who's taking our video clips and he is incorporating them into his own video clips and he's using them as a means to criticize everything I say about the LDS Church. I'm not going to give you this man's name. I know who he is. He, ha- he can do what he wants with the clips. He can, he can chop them up. He can address them. He can attack them because God will use them uh, in the way that he wants and needs. Finally, uh, last week I mentioned Dr. Mary Neal and her, I think I mentioned it on the show, and her near-death experience. And, uh, and I said she had a book out. I was warned about that book today by a caller. So we're going to check that out. But um, it's really interesting. The person who sent me the link And uh, I wrote him and I said, you know, I don't know if you're able to discern through the TV or computer that I'm a cynic and I very rarely give video things like this attention or books, very little time whatsoever. But this morning I decided to watch and I'm really glad I did. And, uh, you know, I I said I didn't really like Mrs. Neal personally, the way she is as a human, but... Uh, I was intrigued by the honesty of her report about having died and having an experience with God after this life. And uh, so I said, you know, my own cynical nature, I was humbled uh, in the face of it, and I just thanked him again for uh, sending that forward to us. Well, he wrote back and he said, a funny story in relation to your previous email. When I was on the final outs with the LDS faith, Uh, I've been waffling for a while and trying to figure out where I stood with Jesus' religion. My mom, also a former Mormon, asked me if I had ever heard of Sean McCraney. I said no, and she proceeded to tell me about your shows and your sermons on the nature of God, the crucifixion, salvation, Christianity, the whole nine yards. The conversation was interesting. I listened to her, but was cynical myself because I associated Christians as Jimmy Swaggart types who oversimplified God, didn't understand the Trinity and his plan of salvation for men, and were out for the money to be made. So later that night, she emailed me one of your videos, Heart of the Matter, before I started watching, the cynic in me was prepared uh, for the usual pop Christian pap that is plastered all over TVM networks. I started watching and watching and watching more. I was blown away. You showed me what a Christian can be, what actually means simple overflowing beauty of it. The Holy Spirit was so powerful that I can say with a surety that after watching those videos that first day I was born again, thanks a ton. The spiritual bricks hit me square on the noggin and he thanks me. And isn't that interesting that he was cynical. He didn't want to watch the videos his mom was telling him to watch. 
he sends me a, a video years later. I don't want to watch the video he sent me. I watch it and it changed my perspective greatly. Really amazing how God, he's, he's working in and with us. He's reaching out to us and he's doing all he can, I believe, to reach everybody with the good news, the great news, the fantastic news that he loved us so much. He sent us his only begotten son and that all we do is we believe on him. Our life changes. It gets better for the better and we move forward in faith. I don't have anything else prepared. I don't know how much time we have left, but I don't care. Let's go and watch some other television and let you off early tonight. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. Good job. I'm on a ride, going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the wind. And I won't be coming out, I'm going This man's awake, a storm's arising The dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know And I can feel the light Start.